Welcome to Team Genius Audio. I'm your host and coach, George Fushing. Thanks for tuning in to discover strategies, expertise, and techniques to help all teams become dream teams. We're covering team craft, product craft, and leadership craft. This episode first appeared as a live stream on YouTube. Join me every week on my channel to be part of the live cast as it happens. Search for George Fushing or Team Genius on YouTube. And now it is time for this episode. Thanks again for joining. Okay, so we are about to bring uh, Ben on. I wanted to share a little bit about um, how I uh, met Ben. It was in 2014 at a uh, Scrum Coaching Retreat. And uh, since then, we um, just hit it off. I'm uh, very grateful that I got to um, do a little bit of uh, work with him. But over the years, we've come, become friends. And I've always been impressed with how much experience he has in, with incredibly large product development efforts. And um, I am very grateful that we get to have him on here. He will share a few words very shortly with all of us about his background. So you really uh, know the vast background of experience that uh, we uh, have available uh, here to us. And so we're going to bring him on in just a minute. Let's switch over. And here he is. Hello, Ben. How's it going? Hello, George. Very good. And thank you very much for having me. You are very like welcome. A, I feel like a pop star or something. It's quite a lovely feeling. <laughs> yeah, you are um, you're overwhelmingly humble and uh, modest about your experience. So it, uh, I need to um, do it for you. So <laughs> people actually get the impression of uh, how big the stuff is that you can uh, draw from. Um, would it be okay if you just uh, shared a little bit about the background so people get an appreciation of uh, who you are? Maybe some of them haven't heard from you yet. Yeah. Yeah, sure thing. Thank you very much, George. Um, so I'm Ben Maynard, as George said, a lovely, lovely warm introduction there. And he's right. I, I, I suppose I am humble. I don't know. Um, I find it difficult to wrap my head around, I suppose, the last decade that I've been spending working in product development, product delivery. I started things off as a business analyst um, many, many years ago um, and then happened across Scrum. And ever since I came across Scrum, I've been working as a, I was a Scrum master, sometimes as an agile coach, sometimes as a fake product owner, um, sometimes as a director, as a senior personal organization, very far away from reality, um, which wasn't something I was particularly comfortable with. Um, but in all through those years, I've worked with uh, one teams, uh, a singular team. I've worked with multiple teams. Um, but I think the one of those the defining characteristics has been is that whenever I've worked, um, we may have been 500 people, maybe a thousand people, but we've been in organizations of tens of thousands of people. Um, and in many of the large organizations that I've worked in, um, there have been it's been rife with dependencies. So it's been an extraordinarily difficult challenge to enable things like feature teams and to really help teams achieve their full their full potential in these large organizations with all the baggage that comes with them. Um, and what I'm looking to do today is to share some of my some of my successes, some of my failures and some of my learnings and hopefully have George throw a couple of awkward questions at me. <laughs> Sounds like my cue. <laughs> Very good. Excellent. Um, so maybe you could also share a little bit more about um, the industries that you've um, been working on or rather focusing on. Um, yeah, sure. What was that? Yeah, so before my sins, um, I've always worked in large financial organizations, uh, say always, up until recently. So I started my career back at JP Morgan, where that's where I could cut my teeth as a business analyst. Um, went on to or at JP Morgan, I was working on kind of back office solutions within the custody area. Um, and that wasn't, uh, I wouldn't say that was large scale development, but it was very traditional waterfall style BA work, which did not sit well with me at all. 
I was really uncomfortable. Um, it made me really anxious being a business analyst in the waterfall model. I know, George, this is something that we've spoken about in the past as being a, a lot. You know, getting over getting over that kind of perfectionist type thing. Because you realise when you're when you're supposed to write a requirements document, it's never going to be perfect. Mm. Um, it can't be perfect. So it's not supposed. And I, I would argue, but they're not supposed to be. So working in that mode stressed me out and really made me quite unhappy. So when I was given the opportunity, I joined World Bank of Scotland to actually join a, a cross-functional team and then do things other than analysis and to get involved in a lot of the database design and implementation, to be involved in some of the testing and some of the kind of the, the project management as it was. Um, it was it was great. And yeah, we worked, we worked in increment, we worked in iterations. I wouldn't say we're that incremental. Um, but we learned a lot about what it was to work as part of a team. And, and the, the people that I met in that team, they're some of my best friends to this day. Um, mm. but yeah, I think they really built amazingly strong relationships with a few people. Um, and they stood the test of time. So I'm incredibly grateful for that experience. Um, and that was, you know, working on a effectively like a kind of a reporting engine, like a massive database, basically. And there was about, I don't know, 100, 150 people working in that. But I was just a cog, cog in the machine at that point. When I was given the opportunity to run the delivery, which would decommission that platform that we had spent two years building, um, I kind of jumped at it. And that's when I decided to start experimenting with Scrum. And we grew from, we did one team and it was working very well. We proved out some things which people didn't think was possible on this vendor platform. We grew from one team to two teams to three teams. Um, and in actual fact, George, um, a slight correction. We first met on a um, certified Scrum product owner course. You're right. That was before. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And so we go back even to 20, was it 2013 or earlier? No, that. Where we, <laughs> we, we, were, we, were, we were most dissatisfied with the person who was delivering the train. <laughs> we shan't be naming names. You know who you are. <laughs> I, I, I was literally about to name who it was. Um, so I, I joke. It, it, was, it was a great course, but it was on the second day of our training when I got the phone call to say that the business line was cancelled. Mm. And everything we had done, those three teams we had built up, the way that we were working, and we had just began to really experiment with less large-scale Scrum, not knowingly. Um, we were, I've been recommended this book. Um, and I started reading it, thinking, oh, my God, that like, everything they're experimenting with, all the problems that we're having. And so we started running some of the same experiments, and things were getting better, and we were really enjoying it. And then they cancelled the business line. So I was there as a fake product owner, learning about product ownership. And I got the phone call saying, yeah, when you come back to the office, you haven't actually got a job, particularly. Um, but I mean, what, what was fantastic is that we, we'd earned so much credit. We, we'd done so much good stuff. They really liked what we were doing that they, whilst two of the teams, um, the people were dispersed around the organisation, they kind of kept the core nucleus of the team together. And see, we were able to work without an official business line, knowing that there was another thing coming on the horizon. Um, mm -hmm. And so they, they, the team did a fantastic job, dropped down to one-week sprints, formed massively well as a team. And it was, you know, one of those situations I've seen numerous times since where it was a good collection of expertise mm -hmm. and experience, you know, and with that came... Uh, a lot of over uh, increasing amounts of humility and appreciating that actually they are dependent upon each other and everyone was going learning journey together and they built these beautiful relationships so when the opportunity came to then start again and we did all that we, we we really wanted to start it properly so we flew people over from india we got heads of business together we spent a week 
doing like you know like a traditional kind of four wall planning thing we brought up this roadmap and we had a certain degree of confidence that we could get the platform out there in production from the time frame they wanted but with only two percent of the clients they wanted Wow. We know there's no way we could do it 100%. We didn't see any way. We said, look, we can, we can, we are pretty confident we can get it out, and we'll support yeah. like basically these five clients who have got really simple needs. But once it's out there, then we can do some interesting stuff, and then all the stuff which the vendor hasn't finished, maybe it'll be finished by then, and we can. And and they said, yeah, that's great. Uh, never going to happen. Hmm. What if we gave you 50 people? Yeah. Like we said, well, uh, it still won't work. Like, yeah. this is the right plan so then they, they poured more people brought more people in and it was our first it was my largest first large scale scrum adoption is what i wrote my less case study about to become a less mm-hmm. trainer um but it was one of the hardest um most educational um and i hope non-repeatable times in my career because it was really hard mm-hmm. um but we learned a lot um from then actually what, what for me what i really enjoyed doing after that actually why i met um a particularly very a very very good friend of mine um out in jersey because i ended up being poached from my area that i was working in rbs and told let's start an internal consultancy i'm talking to loads of people who want to learn about agile let me send you around the world talking to people mm, sounds like a good like, job. <laughs> it, was, it was lovely so on, on rbs's dollar i was able to travel the world delivering various different agile training doing coaching mentoring um, spent quite a bit of time out in Jersey, where I met my friend Nadia, um, which was yeah, which is great. I'm still great friends with her now. Um, probably one of the best scrum masters I've ever worked with. Um, and she's got some great stories. But it's always been the challenge of working in these large organisations. It's always the fact you're just a tiny, there's always so much external pressure. You're, part, you're one part of a small system. And it's difficult to feel like you're successful, I think, which is where some of my lack of perhaps willingness to talk about it and go in depth, because I don't honestly feel at times that um, that, that I, that it's a success that I want to shout about. Yeah, I learned a lot. And yeah, I think it positively affected many people's lives, but it mm. also made lots of people uncomfortable and made things really hard for people. Um, so it's a difficult balance to strike, I've always found. I've always found. Yeah. And I, I, try, I try not to delude myself <laughs> that I'm, I'm at the Pied Piper of happiness um, right. because change is hard and large change is even harder. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, so this sounds like we're already getting into so, some uh, areas where you could give some uh, tips of things that uh, people should bear in mind who find themselves in similar situations. Before we do that, I wanted to say hello again to everyone who's watching live. Thank you very much for joining us today. And also thank you very much for the likes. If you do um, have a comments field that you see there, do drop a note. Let us know where you're uh, watching us from. And if you have any questions, pop them in the comments as well. Uh, we Uh, here not only to um, have our conversation but also to pull in what you're curious about so please let us know where you're joining us from Um, if you like what you're hearing give us those likes and if you've got any questions please put them in the comments also Um, one thing you said just before um, you talked about the move on to RBS was that even though you got that uh, horrible phone call where you said actually when you come back tomorrow the work is gone they actually left you together um, as a team uh, so that surprised me. I, I, I probably heard about that story before, but I forgot it. Um, but it's so incredibly rare that uh, organizations um, do that, right? It's one of the things that we advocate um, to have long-lasting teams because it's a great investment. And uh, dispersing teams and reassembling um, is actually throwing a lot of that investment out the window. Uh, so that's a, that's a really good thing that they did. Yeah, so, I mean, 
we, we, I mean, I think we were as surprised as anybody else. But mm. um, and, you know, the team, well, yeah, they stayed together as a team. They picked up another piece of work. Um, and the interesting thing was, even though they picked up, a, they picked up another piece of work in addition to what we, well, what we'd said was that we, we've got to defend the platform. It, yeah. it was a bit, a bit rubbish. Um, and what we, what we really wanted to do was to kind of get to a point where we could do one-click deploys to production. Mm. And and it was and it was just like trying to carve um, a, a statue out of jelly, you know. It was so hard because it it wasn't designed to do that. So we had some a couple of really, really bright, experienced, fantastic people who helped that along. So what happened was the team were working on working towards that one click deploy, which we never achieved, but we we made strides in the right direction. Um, but they also picked up another piece of work, unrelated. And what they did when they picked up a piece of work was that they were employing everything that we had been doing. You know, they'd taken a lot of the different techniques and they, they were mm. trying to, and even the, even the senior people that were involved in it, were trying to use some of the stuff that we'd proven could be beneficial. And it was lovely to see. But I think this is kind of a challenge is that um, it's very easy for a single team to be really successful. Um, yeah. And it's even easier when that single team have very few dependencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the common mistakes I always see organizations make and feel free to interrupt me and take this off in a different direction if you don't want to end this angle that. No, this is what we we, um, want to learn about, right? So that uh, as um, uh, people who are joining us uh, might be product owners, might be change agents, uh, might be coaches. Those are the things that we might have seen. But um, if if there is reassurance because it's not only what they see, but also what um, someone like you has seen, that is a wonderful thing. So what is that challenge? So um, what do you name things? Uh, When you start something, do you call it a pilot? You call it a pilot. People think it's a one-off. Pilots don't scale. Pilots are pilots, generally speaking. Um, very rarely do you come across situations where we'll say, we had this really successful pilot, and now the whole organization works in that way. Because um, oftentimes you, they, they, pick a, they pick a delivery which has very few dependencies, where they're able to build relationships closely with the customer, and it works really well in that in isolation. Um, and then these pilots are really successful, not because uh, because of the hard work people put in, but also because of the nature of them. They haven't, they haven't got many dependencies. Mm. And what I've really found when I go into organizations um, and you say, I've had a really successful pilot, and you look at it and you realize actually they had so few dependencies elsewhere, they were able to create their own little system and deliver it, and it was just fantastic. But it doesn't, it doesn't prove much from a scaling perspective. Mm-hmm. And at the earlier point, people call it pilots, or you can call people call them um experiments i mean think of all these different labels to call these initiatives um, and they're all flawed in my experience i'm yet to find a label which works well um at rbs we are uh, at deutsche bank we practice we tried to use it we're thinking okay well we won't use pilot so let's say chapter like a chapter in a book this is the first chapter and we'll move on and do subsequent chapters um but we didn't put enough effort in to make get a shared understanding of what meant by chapter so it got bent and skewed and became other and different things um so i think it's really difficult um if you're looking to kind of do like a like a parallel organization so for example what it recommends in less is that you if you're in a situation where in a big organization you do a deeper narrow slice and you get say 50 or so people or you know, 50 or less um fewer and you start there you master it and then you can grow it from there mm. but what label that as what do you call that deep narrow slice because people want to label it with something 
and it's hard to do, which is why I think there's a, there's a lot of merit in saying, do not just don't don't almost don't bother doing a lot of that to begin with. Just find some good stuff that's happening and just amplify it. Um, yeah. So why wouldn't you just um, label it based on what that customer value is that these 50 people or so are looking to realize? Might be it be a feature set name or a service name or a product name? Yeah, because then, then the, the challenge then that you get with that is then they say, well, okay, so when this delivery ends, then what happens to that group? You can talk about long-lived teams, but let's say it's delivery X. Well, so delivery X is coming to an end. Do you feed more work into that? Or do you take the learnings from that and spread it out? How do you manage that? Um, and I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that you know, throughout the years that I've seen mm. so much of an issue with this um, in many different situations. And I've been uh, arguably no better at finding a suitable label. Um, yeah. And it shouldn't really matter, in all, in all honesty. Um, mm. But there is something that does to people's minds. And, and you want to create a shared understanding of what you're trying to achieve. So absolutely name it up in the feature set, but then I find that people then say, so what next? Like, what have we done here? Is this a parallel organization? And will it only ever be like that delivery? Or do we add in more? How does that work from a product backlog perspective? Yeah. Like, I'll be saying, but if, if it's this one, if it's delivery X, Y, Z, but that's mm -hmm. on a backlog somewhere else and the rest of the, and it, 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 it's an interesting and probably maybe trivial challenge. So I'd love to hear mm -hmm. people's opinions on it. <laughs> well, I, I It is, um, <clears throat> if we only look at it from the product development side, it, uh, it's probably a little bit simpler. But uh, what I'm also hearing is that there's something about the, um, the, the, the group identity of the set of teams, right? So mm -hmm. if, if they actually have an identity of their own and uh, they are called the white dragons, whatever, <laughs> for example, and this group of um, um, 50 people or so, they're all separated in um, cross-functional teams and um, they're the white dragons. But, so if, if we start to entertain the idea that um, it's this group of people that we're going to keep together and uh, then it is more a question, uh, well, then it's more um, then it's easier for us to see whether we're also shifting the way that we are handling work, right? Because traditionally, mm. you, you um, pick up people from across the organization and then you put them on a piece of work. Uh, if, and we're trying to turn it on its head, right? Where we're keeping the people together and bring work to the teams, mm. also in a scaled environment, right? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point because, and it's helped me kind of think it through a little bit more because if whatever you label some an area it has to kind of make sense in the broader system you're working in so if your organization is built upon um customer journeys or something mm. and they must have a customer journey and then the new area isn't actually working on a customer journey it's working on something else like what do you because you decide to take a different view of it then you can't name after a customer journey so you want to call them something else so if say for example you just relabeled the whole organization as different colored dragons And I can see that would probably be better because then it doesn't really create differentiate all in it together. But the, I think it's kind of a it's an interesting challenge from a large, particularly from a large scale Scrum perspective, because it says that you know if there's special work, if there's extra work to be done, it isn't a special team that does that. It's the feature teams that do that work. Yeah. And yet we say, do a deep and narrow slice of 50 people and have those have their master this new way of working, and we're effectively saying here's some special work for some special people to do to the rest of the organization. Mm. And it does create a bit of an us and them. So, for example, when I 
go into a, a client and they say, can you just kind of give us some advice and recommendations? I just spend as much time as I can do talking to as many people as I can, finding out all the good stuff that's happening and all the problems that people think need to be fixed. And then my challenge is to bring those together into something that's meaningful. And so yeah. then maybe, they say, okay, what, we're gonna, what, we'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a pilot here. And I say, well, that's great, but you need to feed everybody else. Mm-hmm. You can't just do that one thing. You have to feed everyone else. You have to give them something. That has to be a path for people. Mm. And I think there's some of the challenge that you find, which is, which is why it's nice if you can just do change in a slower, more relaxed, evolutionary pace where you just kind of get some good guiding principles, you have a clear organisational goal, and everyone just begins continuously improving towards that vision of perfection. Mm. So what, that, what have you seen works that um, puts organizations in a position where they, they want to do that and they're committed to persevering with, uh, with such an approach? Like there has to be a, there has to be a motivating goal that everyone can get behind. And there has to be a high degree of alignment between the senior person, let's say the CEO, CIO, whoever it may be, and the people that report into them. Mm-hmm. And there has to be a high degree of alignment there. Now, where that then, in order to be, and I would say to, to increase chances of success, that's when you have to take a look at the structure, because if reporting into the CIO, you've got um, your development organization and then a project management organization and a testing organization. And then you're saying, oh, now teams get together and work, you know, and, and multi-skilled, ignore these organizational boundaries, but then those managers still want to know what's happening with their people. And so you almost have to kind of say at that leadership level, if you're going to do that deep and narrow slice, um, what I've seen work well is when you say, and let's take a slice through the leadership team as well. Mm. And take one person from the leadership team to look after this slice, and then everyone rolls up into that person. So then magically, all the different infighting and all the different like handovers begin to disintegrate because there's no longer that organizational construct within that deep and narrow slice. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, executive sponsorship. Executive sponsorship and, and a high degree of alignment. Mm. You, can't, you can't underestimate the, the price that teams pay for a lack of alignment at a leadership right. level. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that regularly. And, 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 and it's, it's hard, but... Yeah, it is, uh, it is hard, right? Um, so for, because um, we, we're talking truly enterprise scale, right? Um, something that I always like to um, invite is a consideration of uh, what are the types of behaviors that the senior management would like to see in the organization. And then, um, um, self-observe so they look at how they are actually interacting and behaving inside the senior management team and more often than not the structure of the organization is actually reflected in the behavior in the senior management team and yeah. uh, for uh, for better or not so good <laughs> I mean, it's because it's interesting from a systems thinking perspective right you talk about the latent but the behaviors or latent behaviors within a system if a leadership team behaving in that way then other people will be behaving in similar ways if not the same way just in different contexts so you can always um yeah if if, i mean i'm I'm terrible for it historically like always chastising people for the way they behave and you know oh well hold on a bit that's just me isn't it i'm basically annoyed at myself Um, (laughs) and and there's there's a lot to take on board there um uh, a friend of mine uh, amad fadmi um has got something called behavior stories which he uses with leadership teams to say, talk about what beha- what the behavior stories they need to tell themselves, how they want their behaviors to change. And he'll then code 
leadership team to stay true to those behavior stories which they have designed for themselves um but then it always comes back to saying and here's the singular goal we're going for mm -hmm. yeah alignment around a, a cohesive um mutually agreed and developed goal yeah i mean systems yeah. thinking a system needs a goal or a purpose um empirical process control uh, plan do check act anything in lean all needs a vision for what you're working towards I and mean, pick one improvement framework which says just use this framework and you'll and you'll get what you need without without defining what you need no and how, how can people continuously improve if they don't know what they're continuously improving for yeah what are you optimizing for yeah mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense absolutely um so these um uh, sets of teams let's uh, focus a little bit more on on them um so as they started um what is it that really helps those teams uh, shine what are some of the um, elements that you've seen work really well for that to happen at such a scale if i take uh it was a pattern that we tried heavily in one of the places where i worked um And the first time we did it, it was a resounding success. And basically we said, okay, well, we know we're bringing together people from different technical skill sets. Historically, they were split between basically front end and back end. And we got them together. Um, and we spent six weeks focusing on building them as a strong unit. Given the opportunity to, we, went, we did a, a team charter over a series of days. We did a market of skills um, as part of that kickoff, which was phenomenal. The market of skills is probably one of the most enlightening and kind of bonding moments for them. It was yeah. wonderful. Um, we had a great mixture of complementary skills. They were able to um, define their own clear purpose within the broader organizational purpose. They, they were just good people by and large who we just invent, we gave space to. Um, one thing we did say to the, to the product owner, we agreed that they were allowed a you know, 25% learning budget. So for the first few, um, like three or four sprints, they could put aside 25% of that time just to learn whatever they needed to learn. Mm -hmm. So they did loads of more programming. Um, they spent loads of time pairing up. They learned about all these different parts of the system they'd never seen before. Um, and making that investment in them, building their relationships and building a certain degree of trust um, the Scrum Master did a great job at getting them involved in um, extracurricular activities like uh, volleyball, for example, or take, getting them to go out for a beer, um, which helped hugely for them, and it really bonded them. And by the time they actually started in the first sprint, um, they were a, a pretty high-performing team. Um, and even though it got bumpy for them later on, and it was challenging, they, they, were, they were just a very strong team. They were extraordinarily res resilient. Mm. And when I read the... Yeah, the honor of scrum mastering them for a while um, towards the end of my time at this organization um it was a it was a joy in many respects um because they they reacted so well to having their behaviors reflected back at them or to um becoming aware of something they weren't aware of before and they just dealt with it very well um mm -hmm. and I think, i think a lot of it was just down to the, the effort we put in and what what didn't work so well is that the It was okay when it was seen as this one-off event, but then all of a sudden when we said, well, you know, every new team that joins to work on this backlog should go through this kind of six-week period of team forming, it all of a sudden didn't become very palatable. And ironically, you know, the, the area that could have done it the most where there was the, the highest number of new starters who could have really done with that time to really bond and form a strong team and to kind of realize, you know, to create some space and increase their capability, um, 
were never given the right opportunity to actually do that. Mm, that's uh, a shame. It, it was a huge shame. It was, and it set, us, and it, set, it set everyone back. And it wasn't something which um, I don't think they ever reached um, their the true potential as a result. Right. So what uh, what was the, um, the uh, hey Thomas thank you very much for dropping in and uh, yeah thanks thanks for the comment um, we um, <clears throat> uh, what was the difference between uh, them agreeing to this um, six week um, sort of multi event kickoff time for the first set of teams yeah. and then not wanting to do it from the second when they probably have seen what the impact was of doing that in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. If I would, if I was going to be diplomatic, mm. I would say pragmatism. I would mm. say, but it, just didn't seem like a, it didn't seem like the practical thing to do. Um, I, if I was being honest, I would say that it was a lack of alignment on the goal and a mm. lack of a, and the desire to keep control of an empire and to shape it in a way that they thought was the right thing to do i think it showed yeah. a lack of i think it showed a, a lack of understanding of what we we're trying to achieve um and i and i think that was one of the main issues mm. i don't i can't i am obviously biased about this because i've got yeah. my own opinions on it but i do think that if if we've been highly aligned and if we've been giving people adequate time and adequate support and we've yeah we've been proven that it is beneficial and that was there um i think that um the lack of alignment the lack of kind of seeing people as equals oh that works with them because they are them but it won't work for anyone else because they're not them mm. But, but, there were never, but then no one was ever given the opportunity to actually exercise that, so they never knew. Um, there was a high, there was a big focus on goals which weren't probably the best system optimization goals. Like mm -hmm. we need to hire 100 people in this time frame. So they were very much focused on hiring people and then under the promise that they would be effective very quickly. Um, but it takes a long time for people to be effective. So I think they, yeah. they brought people in. If I need to get me to get them delivering, and then you know, let's get them delivering, but it, it didn't gel. Yeah. Hmm. So that's uh, that's yet already another key takeaway, because um, you know whether it's one team or a multi-team, kickoffs are important, and it's not so much that the product get, gets kicked off; it's that the team gets kicked off. Uh, yeah. In the right way. Mm -hmm. and actually, one of the and you know, one of the one of the things I've I'm yet to see not work very well when done properly is um, as part of that kickoff doing an impact mapping session. They are run well, they are uh, magical, I would say. It, it does a huge deal to get the, the, the teams really close to the users to talk about everything from a user's perspective, like what do you need to do differently um, to have a really clear measurable outcome and understand that you don't have to achieve it all, but how much of it do you have to achieve in order for you to then kind of reassess and say, do you want to continue investing in this? Um, and impact mapping sessions, when they run well, are really, really effective as part of a team kickoff. And it's also a great way to build your initial backlog. Right, right, right. Absolutely true. Very good. Um, so for those of you watching us live, thank you for um, sticking around. If you do have any questions, please put them in the comments. We are very happy to um, take them on. Uh, we're going to keep our conversations for another 15, 30 minutes or so. And uh, we're going to go on to a few more questions now. So the first one, uh, Ben, would be, 
You spoke about uh, starting with a um, deep and narrow slice of uh, 50 people when um, adopting more large-scale uh, large scrum type patterns. Uh, but then you would um, gradually scale it up, right? Yeah, that's the idea. And the way I view it is if I get less huge, I say large-scale scrum, the less huge variant, where you effectively have um, air, um, collections of ver uh, requirements which are correlated heavily in some way. Mm. So they have the same user, they're on the same part, they're maybe not part of the same platform, but they mean yeah. they are meaningful whole, whole features from a user's perspective. The way I see it is that 50 people is almost the maximum you'd have in an area in less huge. So it's just a case yeah. of saying, great, so we go first in this area, and then let's find another set of requirements, and let's have a second area, and then let's have a third area. And so grow it's multiples out. of uh, 50, roughly. Yeah, well, 50 or less. I mean, what we'd say in less is that an area... So basically, you know, an area backlog would have four to eight teams. So you can do the maths on that. There's somewhere between like 32 and 64 if you look at an eight-person team. Um, eight being the upper number because after eight, it gets hard. Um, mm. I'm say something, and I'm, I'm looking for some controversy here, and I want people to educate me a little bit because I haven't been able to fully get my head around it. But there's none of this. Um, we didn't mention Dunbar's number, which is so prevalent well, in that. I, I was just about to bring it in because you kept mentioning 50. So I had Dunbar's number pop up in my head. And um, well, I don't know whether you're going to get much controversy from me. But uh, what when, when you were thinking about Dunbar's number, what were you about to say? Let's see what um, what, what we're thinking about this. That I don't think it's contextual. Yeah. I, if I'm in one room with 150 people and that's my social connections, I don't think I can leave that room, walk into another room and then right. magically get an additional 150. So, the one, so I think as a number of number of social connections, I can do 150. I, I I don't I kind of I can see that's feasible. But then when I walk into the office, it's not a magically another 150 people. Yeah. So I've got to disappoint you and those viewers who were um, here for hoping for more controversy, but I, I happen to agree with that. I think this number has been abused. For those of you who are not familiar, the Dunbar number suggests that um, for every for a human being, there is a set number of um, relationships with other people that we can roughly keep in our mind and not necessarily all to the same strength or depth or, or um, level of, uh, of connection, but overall the number of connections. And it's been uh, used in the business world as a as a goal for organizational sizing and uh, yeah uh, ben i fully agree it, it does not make sense the way it's been applied because as a human person uh, i can only re retain a maximum of 150 and i'm not one of those people actually so for for me my scale is a lot uh, smaller um to uh, I, th i think with meaningful connections that i can keep yeah. Uh, but yeah as a human being you as you said uh, you made it uh, more um, tangible by using the room analogy. Um, for me, it's always, yeah, I, I don't stop being the George um, outside of work when I get to go into the office and then I'm the work George and I have a new set of 150 people that I can have connections with. It just doesn't work. Like like you switch your brains out. You're the man with two brains. <laughs> you've got an brain and a home brain and you've got magically a number, number of connections. And what I find disappointing is the number yeah. of um But, well, there's at least one framework and one book I can think of where a large, a large proportion of what it espouses is based upon Dunbar's number. Now, I could have misinterpreted it. I know Dunbar is still alive. I keep meaning to try and reach out and maybe just, just ask the question, <laughs> have I misunderstood this? Because I'm happy to be proven wrong. Mm. But in less, you know, we do think that you know, we have this idea of, you know, 
really was saying like 64 people tops ish um for an area and even then i think that's still a lot of people you know you're asking a yeah. lot of teams to work together um and and that's given less where it's saying that most teams are feature teams and we don't have dependencies so you're not even worrying about managing dependencies you're pushing a lot of that down to you into the into the build servers and into your code so even then that's still a lot of people mm. you know and you know, way you know like people may kind of move away from getting 80 people in a room it's, it's interesting actually this is something i want to bring up um with you offline but we'll do it now um because we have we have reasonably strong views about product backlog refinement yeah we do yeah, we, like, we <laughs> said that product backlog refinement is as much of the act as soft product creation as the actual writing of the software for example yep. um and yet people shrivel up when you say that maybe two teams should do refinement together mm. but we'll have to rent a marquee and get caterers to do pi planning So what's the difference between, you know, if it's planning, it's okay. It's okay to get yeah. those people together to plan, but it's not okay to get two teams together to understand what they're going to do. Hmm. Yeah, funny that. Uh, what are your theories on why that might be? I think that we, people love planning. I think we, we've still got a long <laughs> way to go. We've yeah. still got a long way to go. We're still trying to break our organizations and our work down um, into a mechanistic manufacturing style analogy. I don't think that by and large a lot of people have really understood the complexity of it and the fact we can't reduce it down. Mm. Um, I think D. Hock, the guy that you know, uh, created Visa in his book Warm from Money, which is a fantastic book, you know, he he got this in like 1958 mm. and did his best to create Visa in this mold to try and ignore what he would call the Newtonian uh, reductionist view of the world, trying to understand yeah. the cause and effect, and it didn't. You just you just can't do it. Um, and yeah, I think that's what we still try and do. So I think when we talk about planning, um, we're happy to get together because obviously, you know, um, if you plan, to, if you plan to fail, you if you what is it? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Right. So we've got to have some planning. We've got to have a lot of planning, and uh, yeah, make it good planning, and exactly. it will be fine. The only failure of planning is that we haven't spent enough time on it, apparently. <laughs> Yeah. So then, um, uh, would, wouldn't it come become transparent during um, such a planning event if it's difficult that they haven't done the required pre-work, which is usually accomplished in product backlog refinement? Yeah. No. I mean, it would make it even more difficult. But you've got, but you've got, you've got. But also, I think that I'm not. I'm, I'm not bashing PI planning or anything. I've only been involved in probably five or six large-scale planning events. Mm. But what I've seen in most of them is that um, they are time-pressured. You're expected to exit with a plan. You're expected to kind of make a, you know, and when people say plan, people don't want to plan. Like if people want to plan, it's because they don't trust us. Yeah. All right? what, they, what, they want, what they want to know is when they're going to get what they want to get. And if they want, if they want to know a breakdown of the plan, they want, they want to have, they want to be able to trust us on that. So they want to see that we thought it through. So you're in this kind of time box situation where you spent a lot of money to get all these people together. There's a high degree of pressure and you go through and you try and make a plan. And then mm -hmm. I think of the last three or four PI plans I was involved in, um, nothing that came out of there was actually done. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's a failure of PI planning. It's probably a, a you know, a, a deficit in the way that they approached it, but you know, well, it was a lot systemically of how out of date it might be once everybody goes back to their own yeah. areas. And so then you can put as much you can you can do do loads, you know. And I don't know how much um, work they've done beforehand to prep for it. 
Um, I don't know yeah. how much refinement people would do beforehand. I know there's certainly lots of conversations happening in the moment, but yeah. a lot of that was because that the, the teams involved within there weren't structured as feature teams. Because yeah. if you are a feature team, by the strict definition, you have zero dependencies. Right, under strict definition, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that um, that brings up the image in my mind of, um, although, yeah, as you know, aphantasia, so it doesn't actually come up, but I remember seeing it, <laughs> remember having seen it, um, where they do this dependency mapping and they use a lot of red string, uh, which is a wonderful indicator of the dependencies. And in some cases, yeah, I can definitely see that the the, the, the systemic reason is that they're not actually uh, feature teams, but component yeah. teams. And I think, yeah, I think so, this is part of the well, part of the problem is that we ask teams, that are, and this happens in all over the world, not just in any yeah. PI safe base, but we ask teams to make individual plans, and then we try and retro retrospectively systemically optimize all of the locally optimized plans. Yeah. You can't take a load of stuff that's been optimized for an individual little a team and then put it together and optimize it as a whole, because you're always going to end up with something which is suboptimal. Right. Um so you you mentioned uh, essentially that we're looking at uh, multiples of these um, area structures, each with roughly 50 people or so. Um, so um, what what would you say is crucial to bear in mind um, in order to keep up good teamwork and uh, keep up the team spirit in those groups and across those uh, groups? Have the, have the product owner really focus on building the right relationships? So not being a an in-between uh, in person, a proxy? But actually focus on building strong relationships between the, the customers, the users, and the teams, so that the teams are getting benefit and the users are getting benefit from kind of working together. Um, I've seen that when they are set a good, clear goal, so that, uh, I, um, right, we've got, we have a period of time, we've made a commitment to a regulator or, or somebody, and we, we need to get this done by, by this time, but how you do it is up to you. Here is the outcome we're looking to achieve by way of making this much money or saving or protecting this much cash um, and letting the teams get on and work within that clearly defined boundary. Mm. So they've got a goal, it's motivating them. They can see what, how it's affecting the bottom line. They know who to speak to. They know that the product owner has got their back to build around the right relationships. Having the product owner building good relationships with higher, higher management, um, ensuring that whatever happens within how many product owners you have, that they're supporting the organizational direction. So if as an organization you say we're gonna be we're gonna be agile, fantastic, there's a buckets of it and we're gonna do servant leadership, but then your product owners start behaving like autocrats and dictators, but not supporting your organizational strategic direction. Mm. So you have to have make sure that as a product owner you are supporting that direction as well. Um, and have people I think having people move around based upon what they're interested in learning. And balancing that with having people work on what's most valuable mm. is also important because I think there is a, one of the one of the big uh, issues I think is that people are, we talk about the the people who do the work as the bottom and the people who, who are the leaders as the top. When actually I kind of think it's the other way around, like it's kind of saying you're, you're at the bottom of it, so you're the least important when actually you're the most important. So I think respecting the teams as the most as your engine, as the people that will drive your organisation forward. Are the people that are going to innovate and the people that are going to build the strong relationships and, and deliver you fantastic outcomes through the mm -hmm. output that they create. Um, and I think that losing, taking your eye off of that and just trying to view it as a mechanistic um, uh, 
like a machine with the people at the bottom that I think is wrong. So you have to keep that strong people focus um, and find ways to measure people's engagement and, and monitor that and talk to people. Go and see what they're doing. Um, and if you, if you can keep doing all of that and there's, a, and there's someone that is a manager or a leader or a scrum master or a coach who's supporting the people who are doing the real work, um, doing that remaining humble, mm-hmm. I think you can achieve a lot. Yeah. And uh, how regularly do you see all of these things practiced in those larger scale efforts that you've been uh, privy to observe um, or shape? I think uh, not as much as I would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's talk of engagement, and I think loads of Scrum Masters do a great job at looking at uh, their team's engagements, like how they're doing. I think that um, go see is always a sticking point. I think that managers, uh, le- leaders slash managers, um, whichever they class themselves as, um, find it very difficult to know how to approach go see, what it really means, because um, you kind of ask them to do something that maybe they haven't done for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of alien to them. And then I think that, that they, then people struggle because they haven't got the relationships. I mean, I know when I was there, yeah, I was a director at Deutsche Bank. There was a time when I, I was definitely losing touch with the teams. I didn't have their trust and respect. So my ability to rock up and ask them questions and uh, inquire and see if there's somewhere I could help them was massively diminished. Because I'd turn up and they'd be like, well, what, here we go. Like, what's he want? What's he after? Mm-hmm. No matter what my intention was, if I didn't have that trust and respect, it was going to fail. So I say there is sporadic applications of the things that I believe can really help. And I think a lot of that's the standard just to time and trust and build and relationship building between between everyone in the organization. Yeah. Mm, thank you. Um, uh, what would you say are some um, re- recurring challenges that you find as you go now from uh, organization to organization in their in their curiosity or ambition to adopt uh these ways of working that's cool um i think the a reoccurring conversation i've had with most if not all places i've been is what is the role of manager um and being able to correlate um the bureaucratic aspects of the managerial role in large organizations with then taking a more uh lean let's say, Management 3.0 perspective of management. Mm. And I find that is a, is a, is a reoccurring challenge. Um, like less large-scale Scrum says that you know, very much along with lean managers as teachers in there to improve the capability of the system. Um, but for many, that isn't, um, they want more prescription than that. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we're asking people to do is to shift from uh, managing the work on behalf of people and dealing with the effects of um, organizations that are based upon technology uh, architectural lines. Yeah. To saying, well, those architectural lines are now disappearing. Mm-hmm. And you've now got whole teams that need to grow together. So how yeah, helping how do you now engage with those whole teams now that you're not uh, now you're not the person in charge of the big the big data yeah. organization? what are you in charge of now? I think that's a, that's a big challenge. It's a, it's a big pattern that I do see reoccurring. Yeah. So if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, some people would um, describe that as the, the, the frozen middle, which yeah. makes it sound rather horrible. Um, it does. It does. Yeah. So I, I 
personally think I'm, I'm very curious to get your views on, on this. Uh, I think there's a huge potential um, uh, for middle management and for organizations, because if um, for those of them who are up for it, um, if they can withdraw from the management of the work, and um, um, paraphrasing what uh, what you shared, go more into developing the people and clearing the path for value creation by optimizing the organizational structures processes around them. Um, that is a that is an amazing advantage for any organization to have, right? Because um, the the managers don't have to concern themselves with um, the work anymore. So their creative potential can be allocated to actually making the organization a much more lean and improve the flow of um, product value. Is that roughly along the lines of uh, how you're seeing it or what would you say? Yeah, no, it is, but it's also, um, and yeah, I'm aware that I'm probably too negative about these things a lot of the time, but I I say, but it's also very, very difficult because if you're on a team, for example, right, and and you've been a, front-end developer and then you're asked to get involved with selenium it's a small little tweak to what you're doing you're still going to be developing a lot of the time but you're just going to learn some new complementary skills what you're saying to the, to the management is saying hey you're going to do a job that you did not apply for you weren't interviewed for this um we don't know if you're if you've got the skills to do this um you can go to some training you can go to a, uh, go to a great course and maybe feel like you're being patronized by someone because you don't see that you want to go down that path and it's really tough for them. It, you know, this isn't something they signed up to. It's not something they've ever been rewarded for. Um, yeah. And also, I think what compounds that is when, they, when the people in those positions have never actually been on a software delivery team. So mm. they don't know what it is to be involved at the cold place and do the work. Mm. Um, you know, so in, in Toyota, they summed it up quite nice in Lean, saying that you, know, you should be able to look at your managers and believe that they could do your job better than you. Mm. Um, I don't think in many organizations that's often the case because people haven't been at the coalface doing it. So it's hard for them to empathize. Yeah. And I don't think some people can or want to learn those skills initially. Yeah. So this, this is where um, we would need to introduce more nuance, right? Because um, th- it comes back to what you mentioned earlier, this uh, uh, Newtonian um, intent and uh, reductionism where we're just trying to oversimplify things that just by definition aren't simple because you're talking about people systems um, mm-hmm. uh, so what if uh, for the next couple of minutes we kind of um, put our heads together and th- um, suggested what a good program might look like that really helps middle management um, through such a transition mm-hmm. uh, First of all, may I say, it'll be understanding the I can'ts from the I won'ts. Mm-hmm. So some people will say, I won't change. And that's fine. Like, they're probably not for this role. Yeah. I'm not saying they have a job, but they're probably not for this role in the future. If they're saying, I can't change, then there's a coaching opportunity there. Mm. And so work with, the, work with the people who say, I'm, I want to change starting now, or the people that say, I can't change. And mm-hmm. focus on that first of all yeah so there's an element of choice of course yeah, yeah. an element of um, working with those who are willing to explore um, options mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, something else that kind of keeps coming up is um, 
the the difference in how people end up in management positions there are some who are actively pursuing management positions and uh, they have um, training in management training in leadership and a background in that practice uh, but then there are a lot of people who have started as practitioners and because they were really good practitioners they uh, the only way to recognize them later on or is to then promote them into a management position and mm -hmm. of course those are fundamentally different sets of uh, skill sets, right? And uh, so I think a, a good program, would you say that it needs to be um, open to kind of remedy some of those errors from the past and just um, make different options available for them? Yeah, I think breaking the link between seniority and being a manager mm -hmm. is wise. Yeah. Um, and I see you see this everywhere. I think this isn't resigned to any one particular industry. There is this perception that in order to be senior, you have to manage people. And I think break that link. So you can be as senior as you can be any level you wish, and you can just be a specialist. If you're growing people and you're investing in the teams you're working with or in, then you can be senior. You don't have to take on any management responsibility. Yeah. I think that's a great thing to break um, mm. because it helps people maintain the things that they're already fantastic in. Yeah. Um, so how and, often have you actually seen that in in the in the world out there, world of work? I've never seen it. No, I have never. I've, I've been fortunate where I've been that person, where I've been a senior person and had no management responsibility. That's been most of my career in large banks, mm -hmm. so it is possible. Um, yeah, but it's not I, common, yeah. is it? No, no, it isn't. And to be fair, it's one of those things that until a few weeks ago, I didn't, until I started talking to my wife about this, actually. Um, and some other people, I didn't realize that I was that I was that fortunate to be in that position, like numerous times, numerous yeah. times. Um, I love, I love being a leader. I love giving. I love being in situations where you can be suggesting different and arguably better ways of doing things, and then people follow you. Mm. Mm -hmm. I like being able to do that. I don't like having to be having to do the line management aspect of it. Um, I, I, I find it a bit too stressful. Um, and I, I'm very fortunate with that. I know that I think um, there are a number of less case studies where this has been the case. Um, but, I, but again, I, I can't recall many instances where I've seen other people that have been senior without having that management responsibility. So it is in depth. If you talk about a program, I think it's um, how to approach it. Separate the I can'ts from the I won'ts. And understand, work, coach the I can'ts, work with people who want to change. I have them, they try and break that linkage between seniority and management so people are freed up to do the things that they actually are, were or are good at. Um, mm -hmm. And then they can do a lot of the things that I suggest a manager should do and things that you're suggesting just from being that senior person, mm -hmm. um, being a specialist. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, knowledge that has to be acquired to understand some of the frameworks and different ways to approach things. So having people go on education, good quality, interactive, engaging education delivered by people that have been there and done it, not professional trainers, but ex-practitioners or current practitioners, like yeah. soon, only soon the ex-practitioners or current practitioners, <laughs> and then having support on the ground to help them transfer that knowledge into real understanding through practice, right. I think mm -hmm. is of the utmost importance. Yeah, so training combined with ongoing support, mentoring, coaching to actually um, get the support to apply and integrate the new skills and behaviors. Yeah, yeah. And with all of this, live around alignment on a on a on a meaningful goal for everyone. Not yeah. not five different goals, one for each member of the leadership right. team, but one goal that brings everyone together. Mm 
Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm going to attempt a very brief uh, recap on some of the key things that we would want to pay um, attention to in uh, larger scales. And uh, um, recapping them, it's occurring to me that they're not all too different compared to one team. <laughs> uh, so we, we had a clear alignment around a, a shared goal. Um, we had investing in um, the, the team at the beginning to help them uh, form uh, in the process of teaming, as it is most modernly called, and uh, not skip on that because of uh, the, the huge dividends that that uh, pays. Uh, we talked about um, skilled product ownership, um, where they have good relationships with the team, good relationships uh, with the stakeholders around that. Um, we talked about um, the uh, acknowledgements that we want to actively work with uh, management in order to help them um, uh, revisit how what the role is going to be, how best their um, particular skill sets can be leveraged in order to support the teams and support the organization. And we um, touched on the fact that um, uh, simply training on its own will not be fruitful. We want to pair that up with uh, uh, ongoing support, mentoring and coaching. Um, yeah. Would you say those are some of the key points that we covered? Yeah, I would say so. And I don't think I'd add on that. It's just to um, eradicate dependencies. And the dependencies, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. eradicate eradicate what you can manage what is left but don't um don't feel like if you're choosing a framework let's say mm -hmm. scrum that if you've got your organization here don't bolt scrum on the side right and keep yeah. all that the same but bolt scrum on the side and then expect it to succeed because scrum right. you know can replace a lot of what you've got yep um so if you look at scrum and say well, what can we replace what we've got how do we restructure how do we create feature teams how do we eradicate the dependencies then you'll, you'll create a lot of higher order problems to solve that it's the dependencies which will really really slow down this organization it reduces yeah. transparency decreases flexibility and erodes trust because it's very difficult to deliver yeah absolutely um so one more time thank you very much to um you watching this live if you do have any questions please pop them in we're about to wrap up so this is um, pretty much the last call for any questions that you might have um share them in the comments so we can have them here if you're watching this later on feel free to put uh, your questions also in the comments and ben and i can come back and uh, pick some of those up um hopefully but uh, definitely now is your time to, while you're while we're both here um to get them live answered while we're, while we're together um so maybe my last question to you ben would be um you've uh, you've recently made the move from uh, permanent uh, also fixed employment with with one organization to become an uh, independent and um which is a wonderful move uh, i i congratulated you at the time and i'm still happy that you're thriving in that new in that new area um uh, so what i'd like to know and share with everybody watching is uh, what is it that continues to inspire you and your work um Learning from the past, if I'm going to be honest with you, like I think I am, I'm mostly inspired by going back to books that were written a number of years ago. And I realized that actually I like everything we were trying to do, people have tried before in the past and they haven't succeeded, but there's a lot to be learned from the history. Um, so that really does, I think that does inspire me. Um, and working with great people, working with great people who are passionate to really improve things. Um, mm. And as cheesy as it sounds like doing a doing a bit of systems modeling with a group of people who are trying to improve something and seeing them join the dots that they couldn't have joined before and seeing things from a different perspective it inspires me and it, and it does keep me going and um 
Yeah, my kids. <laughs> my kids, obviously. Obviously. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, so we do have a question here. So this is coming from uh, Christian. Hey, Christian uh, is, a, is a loyal uh, uh, follower of uh, what, what, what we're doing and sharing. Welcome back, Christian. So what would you suggest instead of the quarterly PI planning is Christian's question. It's a good question. It's a good question. So um, and I think it all depends upon the organizational context and how much of a planning horizon people are expecting. I think that Having a, a vision for the, what you're trying to achieve and a goal-based roadmap, which is articulating points in the distance and is something to work towards, is, is a nice alternative to um, getting everyone together to plan on, on a quarterly basis. I think shorter planning horizons, doing planning as you go. I mean, Scrum will say that you're, you are planning towards a, a goal, but you're doing it every two weeks. Now, you may have planned a few weeks ahead of that individually as a team. Um, and that yeah that gives you a certain degree of confidence because you know when things get a bit complex because we're humans and we make things complex planning for three months is pretty hard anyway and is that really what is that really what we want to do do we want to plan three months ahead are we just doing it because people have asked us to produce a three-month plan um, or because it's part of a specific framework that uh, the organization needs us to follow because they've chosen well, yeah, we paid a load of money for the frameworks so that's what we want to stick to um but what i would say is there's a huge degree of value in at the beginning of delivery getting everyone together at the beginning of delivery but then the purpose is not exactly planning right no it's understanding <laughs> it's, it's creating a understanding and you can create a roadmap and you can plan out some you know some um do some commitment-based planning and just say okay we yeah. think we kind of fill up the sprints in this way but things will change um, if, you, if you can successfully plan on a quarterly basis and it's, and it's serving all your purposes and it meets your optimization goal, then fantastic. But a lot yeah. of the organizations I work with, um, they may have a desire to do longer range planning, but they also have a desire to, to change when they need to change. Um, mm. I think as an alternative to, the, to getting everyone together to plan for three months is do lighter planning for that three month point. Set a clearly articulated goal and make sure you're putting enough effort in as you go so that you're not making this big investment and increasing your work in progress. Mm. Mm -hmm. So more um, of a road mapping level um, planning together rather than a feature, a feature level? I think so. And I'm sure that there's a good amount of challenge that can be provided to that. And I say it all depends upon your organizational context. But you know, I've been reasonably successful throughout and we've never come together and planned for three months ahead because stuff always changes too quickly anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, thank you first for the question, Christian. I hope that was uh, useful. We have another one here from uh, Nadia. Hey, Nadia, thank you very much for watching and thank you for sending your question through. So back to PBR, is it harsh to say planning gives people dates they can focus on, build more plans on and importantly to them, hold the teams to? Perhaps they view PBR to give them nothing. Hmm. Yeah, planning gives you, gives you a nice contract, gives you, gives you a stick to beat people with. Hmm. PBR doesn't really give people sticks <laughs> as much. Yeah. Um, so is it harsh to say that planning gives people dates to get focus on? No, not at all. Whether or not you actually meet those dates. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the, the what I always want to... Um, uh, stress is the normalization of product backlog refinement. It is just as normal as everything else that is happening in the normal um, product development um, activities, right? It's as normal as designing, it's as normal as uh, coding, as normal as um, user interaction, plotting and user research. It just 
it's part of it. It's part of uh, creating a shared understanding and working out which solution is best for which user need. Um, mm. So if you know if that's not happening, then everything else in the life cycle of the of the team, uh, or rather in the cadence of product creation, gets ever so much harder. Um, this is why I'm, that's why I love you know, what I like about large scale Scrum is it it does it says refinement is an event. It isn't an ongoing activity. It's an event. It's, it's a formal event in less. So you can't escape from it. If you're following less, then you have to do refinement and yeah. you have to put the effort in. Um, yeah. Well, um, to be, um, well, harsh, inspired by Nadia, <laughs> to be harsh, uh, even when we look at one team scrum, uh, more often than not, I don't really see a healthy refinement practice. And it, you know, it's as valid on one team as I'm um, presume if you've seen in much, much larger scales. Yeah, I mean, so, everything's hard. So the most enjoyable product backlog performance I've ever been to have been where we've had people from two or three different teams get together. One person's presented a, like a big chunky thing they're delivering, and then everyone bounces ideas off of each other. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they model it out and they say okay we're thinking about breaking this this big feature down in this way and someone says well hold on we a few months ago we did something similar and we did it this way and they're like well how did you do it that way because wouldn't surely having access to this thing over here wouldn't work and so oh, no, we got around it by and then they're learning mm-hmm. they're learning and they're enjoying it and you've got people who've got the, the the software engineering expertise as well as the analysis expertise and the testing expertise and they're all coming out from different angles and what you come up with is something really interesting and then what you've got actually is a, a chunky feature which is understood by a high percentage of people from different teams. So that work could potentially go to any one of those teams now. And that gives you a high degree of adaptability. If you don't focus on increasing that learning, then you're not going to be able to adapt quickly. Yeah. So um, I think through the conversation, maybe we can uh, summarize that what PBR gives teams is actually um, flow of creation. And uh, they're, they're reducing the risk that they're tripping up in uh, planning and they're increasing the risk that uh, whatever work they pull into the sprint, um, uh, they're, they're increasing the chance of being able to complete that because they've done the necessary preparatory alignment and understanding beforehand just to, you know, enough level. So I would say that one of you, know, when I've been working at scale, one thing I have found useful quite often is um, like, uh, creating a board to show like a refinement board. Okay, this is the stuff we want to be prioritized, but we think it's going to be at the top. This is the stuff that we're refining now. Mm-hmm. And then and, and bring it through. So people say the teams, eventually putting up the backlog as a, as a whole board and just saying this is stuff that's nearly coming in. And then you can see it kind of coming through. The teams know, okay, right, so in refinement next time, we're going to pick up these items. Mm-hmm. And then looking at the whole flow, because sometimes one of the things that slows people down is that they don't manage their work in progress for their refinement. And they try to refine too much, and as a result, then it gets a bit slow, and not a lot gets done. So I think yeah. visualizing that is really great. Um, and from a product owner perspective, and working at scale, um, do the same. I say at an epic level. Hmm. Excellent. Great chart. Great chart. Um, good. So we uh, we had aimed for this to be a, um, around 45 minutes an hour. We are a little bit over that. It's It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, before we close down, are there any um, other key things that you would like for people to know? Um, some top tips. Um, read, read Edgar Schein's work on humble leadership, humble inquiry. Um, 
humble um, consulting. I think they're great books. And there's a lot to learn there. I think don't bite off more than you can chew. Um, and remember that if you know if you if you've got an elephant and you split it in two, it's still an elephant. <laughs> you just two separate halves. You don't you don't make things less complex by making it smaller. You just make it easier to deal with. So yeah. deal with it in smaller pieces, but don't forget that you still got to keep a view on the whole. Hmm. Beautiful, excellent. Thank you very much. Um, so now we are at uh, the end. Um, what are some things that um, you have available that can he help people learn a bit more about uh, large-scale product development? So I've got uh, a number of talks coming up, which can be found on my uh, my company page, on the Sheep page, on LinkedIn. Um, Dreams of Feature Teams is a good one we've got coming up in a few weeks, which is going to be uh, very interesting. Uh, maybe, you know, quite, could be quite contentious. This is going to be good fun. We're talking about yeah, how, how achievable are feature teams in large organizations. Um, I do, uh, I've got a lot of training coming up. So I've got a certified less basics coming up in December and then an online less practitioner in January. Um, both courses are really well received. We spend a lot of time, particularly with the online less practitioner, going really deep on the topics that are of, of importance to those people that turn up. Um, so we would we do lots of systems modeling and we explore lots of really important topics. We get philosophical when needed. Um, but the goal of all of the training is to have people leave with their questions answered um, and maybe some new questions to go and explore themselves. So, um, yeah, my, the training that I offer um, is the best way to kind of get more of an insight to learn a little bit more about large scale scrum in particular. Sounds fantastic. And uh, at this point, uh, for everybody who's with us, a little bonus uh, announcement. Ben and I have actually started to collaborate on put, um, uh, putting something together, a program together that helps people learn about um, becoming really effective uh, in a product ownership role at scale. So if you are interested in uh, learning more about that, we have a little uh, page, a waiting list, if you will, because we're not quite ready to share what we've, uh, what we've got yet. And uh, I'm going to put that in the comments and also in the description down below where you can add your name and email address. And then as soon as we have um, this available, we're going to send it uh, to you and you will be one of the first ones uh, to know. And with that, um, what would be your goodbye words, Ben, now as we're closing our session? Stay optimistic. <laughs> Just in life. Stay optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, these are interesting times. And um, yeah, keep keep learning, stay optimistic. Let's be kind, continue to be kind. <laughs> wonderful. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Ben. It's been absolutely wonderful to uh, learn a lot more from your background, from all the things that you've seen. And uh, at a future juncture, I'm sure I would be delighted to um, have you back for any updates that you'd like to share. Happy to come back, George. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Ben. And thank you, everyone, for uh, watching live and for your questions and uh, likes uh, that have come in. Uh, it's been a pleasure to share this with you. If you do have any follow-up questions, please put them in the comments. And I um, hope to have you join in a future Team Genius Live. Thank you all very much for joining. If you liked what you saw here, um, give us a like. Uh, if you want to get updates on these um, types of uh, videos, please consider subscribing to the channel. And with that, we're going to say goodbye and roll the outro. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Uh, we wish you all a great end of the day and end of the week. All the best for the practice with the teams and goodbye. <laughs>